Are you ready to explore something different, something more? On Straight Ahead, hosts Arya Tepper and I examine sources of cultural vitality, from jazz music to the Jewish tradition. If you're searching for generous and soulful approaches to contemporary challenges, join us for Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Welcome to Straight Ahead. This episode is the last episode of our first season, although we originally recorded it for Jewish American Heritage Month in May 2023. The episode celebrates Jewish American contributions to the jazz tradition, meaning that it celebrates the Omni-American culture that invites Americans, no matter their background, to celebrate human excellence, no matter the source. Hello and welcome to Jewish American Contributions to the Jazz Tradition, an Omni-American Future Project production in honor of Jewish American Heritage Month. I'm Arya Tepper, one of the co-directors of the Omni-American Project, here together with my partner, the legendary GT, Greg Thomas. Greg, how you doing today? I'm doing very well. Arya, it's so great to join you and our viewers so that we can tell stories of Jewish American culture and Jewish history in America, which goes back hundreds of years, right. um, and focus on specific great jazz artists. Right. So we're going to, this is very exciting for me because we're going to be telling jazz stories. We're going to be talking about Jewish American heritage through jazz stories. And jazz is this incredibly rich American tradition. Uh, and it's really, I'm very happy that you're here with us because the viewers are going to get to enjoy some of your uh, expertise and charm uh, and, and vast experience in the world of jazz. Um, so we're going to tell the story through jazz, and we have five stories, and they're lined up a certain way. So maybe you could say a word about what those stories are and how we're lining them up. Absolutely. Glad to. So we've got several stories, as are you saying, uh, and we start with the father of jazz, Louis Armstrong, Pops, and a Jewish family who was totally important to his development as a person, as a young man, and as a musician. Then we go on to Benny Goodman, uh, who was right there near the beginning of the music, you know, and he was called the King of Swing. Then we move up to what's called the bebop era, um, where great alto saxophonist Lee Konitz uh, is the focus and his cool school sound. Mm -hmm. And then we move up to the great tenor saxophonist Michael Brecker, uh, and we end with a great, great teacher in the tradition, Arnie Lawrence. Yeah, Arnie Lawrence, um, who I had the, the pleasure and the privilege of hanging out at his center in Jerusalem a few times. And I'm really excited for the entire program. So uh, let's get started. Uh, please, if you could uh, take us into our first story of the Karnofsky family and, and Louis Armstrong. Glad to. All right, so the Karnofsky family they were a Jew Jewish family from New Orleans who played a crucial role in the growth and development of, as we said, Louis Pops Armstrong. And our theme today is why did Louis Armstrong wear the Star of David for our first story? So Pops is considered the father of the jazz idiom. That's because he was an artistic revolutionary 
who signaled to the world the arrival of the great soloist in jazz. His singing, scatting, and cornet performances were so powerful and swingingly resilient that big bands around the nation created arrangements uh, for their horn sections based on his style and his joyous sense of life. The great Miles Davis once said, no pops, no me. So no pops, no jazz. And in fact, why don't we get a taste of early pops and his greatness and how he loosened up American singing and rhythmic feel on a song titled, Dinah. Is anyone finer in the state of Carolina? If there is, then you know, show to me, Dinah. The Dixie Heights blazing, we love the city gazing to the eyes of Dinah Lee. Baby, every night, while I shake my fight, oh, cause my dynamite changes my mind. Baby, this is your deal. Don't you want to touch on me? I have no line, oh, baby. that deserves an expression of Pops himself. Oh, yes. Hmm. So, why did Pops wear the Star of David around his neck for most of his life? I'll tell you why. Gratitude and appreciation. When Louis Armstrong was a young boy leaving, excuse me, when he was a young boy living with his grandmother in the Third Ward of New Orleans, he was shown warmth and kindness by a Jewish Lithuanian family, the Karnofskis. They hired young Lewis at the age of seven to help with their junk and coal business. As a laborer, he'd get up early to deliver coal from the top of a delivery wagon with one of the family's sons, Morris Karnofsky. In his biography, in his own words, Armstrong wrote, working for these fine people, I learned to be an early riser just like them. I noticed that they believed in being on the move and I wanted to be just like them. They would get ready for work at five o'clock in the morning. I was right there along with them up early in the morning, making hay while the sun shined. He also recalled 
that, quote, the Karnofsky boys were all fine young men, wonderful dispositions. The whole family had that fine warmth for all their Negro help. Now, at dinner time, Mrs. Karnofsky would invite the young Armstrong to have dinner with the family, and Armstrong developed a taste for Jewish food that continued many late, years later into his own home in Queens. Biographer and jazz critic Gary Giddens, in his book, Satchmo, the genius of Louis Armstrong, quotes Armstrong saying, I still eat their food, matzahs, and my wife Lucille keeps them in her bread box. A sensitive soul, Armstrong noticed that many of the Jewish immigrants on the 400 block of South Rampart Street were mistreated by others who identified as white. I had a long admiration for the Jewish people, he said, especially for their long time of courage taking so much abuse for so long. But his reason for wearing the Star of David went beyond mutual sympathy and struggle. One day, Armstrong wrote, when I was on the wagon with Morris Karnofsky, we were on Rampart and Pedido streets, and we passed a pawn shop, which had in its window an old, tarnished, beat-up B-flat cornet. Armstrong continued, it only cost $5.00. Morris advanced me $2 on my salary. Then I put aside 50 cents each week from my small pay. Finally, the cornet was paid for in full. Boy, I was a happy kid. The Karnofskys encouraged him to play and also to sing. According to Armstrong, Esther Tilly Karnofsky, the mother of the home, often sang songs such as Russian lullabies. When I reached the age of 11, I began to realize it was the Jewish family who instilled in me singing from the heart, Armstrong recalled. They encouraged me to carry on. So that's why Louis Armstrong wore the Star of David. Now to our next story about a great Jewish American artist and band leader named Benny Goodman, who played a very important role in breaking down segregation, segregation by opening up the bandstand to great musicians, no matter their origin. Arye, please tell us the story. Absolutely, Greg. Our second Jewish-American jazz story is actually a, a very important event in American history. Uh, it's not just a musical story. It's a victorious battle in the war against Jim Crow that was won at Carnegie Hall in January of 1938 and was won thanks to Benny Goodman's courage and his dedication to human excellence. This is one of those stories where the story of jazz transcends the music and gets to the heart of American culture. Benny Goodman was born in 1909, the ninth of 12 children in a family of poor Eastern European immigrants living in Chicago. His music career began when Benny's father took him and his siblings to a local synagogue that was offering uh, inexpensive music lessons and lending out free instruments. Benny was given a clarinet, and as we all know, the rest is history. From those humble beginnings, Benny grew up to be a world-famous, world-class musician who loved to play with other great musicians, no matter their background, and this is the bottom line of the story. Benny Goodman, simply by loving to play jazz with great jazz musicians, played
played an important role in defeating segregation. Now, even before that historic night at Carnegie Hall in 1938, Benny refused to play by the conventions of segregation. As Lauren Schoenberg, the uh, senior scholar of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, points out, Benny broke the rules while he was ascending to the top. He wasn't there yet, and he still had much to lose. Still, Benny listed Fletcher Henderson as his musical arranger on his records and hired two members of, check it out, Louis Armstrong's band, Lionel Hampton, Hamp, and Teddy Wilson, to play in his own band. Benny not only recorded with Hamp and Wilson, they publicly played together at small venues when this simply wasn't done. So this is the background. Then, in 1938, at Carnegie Hall, Benny kicked it up another notch. For the first time ever, a prestigious institution of concert music was showcasing jazz as a music with a rich history. Today, we take it for granted that jazz is a fine art. That was not the case in 1938. And Benny, the king of swing, was given the gig. So, here's the situation. Benny is facing a decision. He's got the central gig at Carnegie Hall, 1938. He can play it safe by only inviting white musicians or demand that merit and excellence be given their rights. And he chose the latter and shared the bandstand with black American master musicians such as Count Basie, Lester Young, Freddie Green, Johnny Hodges, Cootie Williams, and his old bandmates, Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton. So, so Benny's decision to share the bandstand was the first time that a major American cultural institution had been integrated. Remember, this is around 10 years before uh, Jackie Robinson desegregated baseball. Uh, I will let the great uh, trumpeter and artistic director uh, at Jazz at Lincoln Center, Wynton Marsalis, explain what was at stake in this concert. Well, this concert is very important because it, uh, it was a statement against segregation and against racism. It consolidated the position of jazz culturally. It presented the history of jazz, the history of segregation and racism that we have in the West in general. Um, it, it continues, and Benny Goodman is a very important figure because he risked his life to challenge that social uh, convention. And uh, we all owe a great, a great debt to him that he was willing to, to take that risk and use his platform to say, I don't think this is what our country should be about. What gave Benny the strength to desegregate the bandstand? Benny wanted the best. He wanted to play with the best musicians, period. In other words, a shared love of human excellence gave Benny and his fellow musicians the strength to stomp the blues of racial segregation. One of Benny's big hits is playing in the background right now, Sing, Sing, Sing. Go back and listen to the collective swing and the tender emotion on the recording that night. The generation that danced in the aisles to sing, 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 and they were dancing in the aisles. That's the same generation that defeated the Nazis. I was talking about the 1938 Carnegie Hall concert with my friend, the Israel-born and Brooklyn-based jazz trumpeter Itamar Borohov, who we'll be hearing from later in this webinar. And Itamar posited that simple gratitude was also part of the story. 
why did Benny Goodman invite black American master musicians to appear with him on the bandstand? Because Benny was playing music primarily created originally by black Americans. If so, and I think he's right, this deepens our story. An attitude of gratitude creates the openness that frees us to celebrate excellence without resentment, whatever the source. Now we'll conclude with a taste of the intense controlled energy and beautiful spirit of Benny's quartet with Benny on clarinet, Hamp on vibes, Teddy Wilson on piano, and Gene Krupa on drums in the spirit of what Albert Murray called locomotive onomatopoeia. Imagine when you're hearing the rhythm, a train rumbling down the railroad tracks and enjoy the quartet's deeply integrated flow. So that's the joyful sound of the pioneering Benny Goodman Quartet. Now we'll turn it back over to Greg, who will tell us about the contributions of two Jewish-American jazz musicians who also cultivated their own distinct voices, Lee Konitz and Michael Brecker. Greg, please. Thank you, Aye. Great story about Benny Goodman. Now, I played saxophone in high school and college. So when I listen to that instrument, I can relate to what it takes to become a great musician. These two gentlemen, early in my love affair with the jazz idiom, touched my heart and soul. I'll share the ways I interacted with them and their music and what I feel their contributions are. Let's start with Lee Konitz, who was an improviser's improviser. Konitz is a jazz legend who for 70 plus years made a mark in American music. He was born in Chicago, Illinois on October 13th, 1927 to Austrian and Russian Jewish parents. 
Turns out his parents came to the U.S. around the same time as Louis Armstrong was working as a young man for the Karnowski family. Lee's parents, who spoke Yiddish at home, supported his musical aspirations and purchased a clarinet for him when he was 11 years old. Benny Goodman's popularity and prowess on the clarinet was an early influence on Lee, and fellow jazz clarinet great Artie Shaw, whose parents were also Austrian and Russian Jews, was beloved by Lee's father, especially Shaw's Concerto for Clarinet. Lee took music lessons in Chicago and eventually switched to alto sax as a teenager. At 16, he met Lenny Tristano, a pianist and musical philosopher who profoundly impacted Lee's approach to music for the remainder of his life, which ended in 2020 at the age of 92 from complications due to the COVID-19 virus. Now, Lenny Tristano urged each of his students to learn the jazz tradition, particularly as found in the music of tenor saxophonist Lester Young, nicknamed Prez, and Charlie Parker, nicknamed Bird. Bird is the alto saxophonist who pioneered the virtuoso style of jazz called bebop. Here's Lee explaining the influence of Bird, Charlie Parker, and why he's distinct from Charlie Parker in his own stylistic approach. Because uh, Charlie Parker was the main voice at that time. He played the same instrument that I played, and I didn't really play like him. I didn't uh, have a, a similar experience in life that he had, and uh, I was uh, under the uh, inspiration of Lenny, who loved Bird also, but uh, uh, suggested to me that... Uh, I should probably cool it and try to develop my own voice as much as possible. But in order to develop your own voice, you have to know something about uh, where you come from, where the music comes from. So I studied, learned solos of, uh, of uh, Louis Armstrong and Lester Young and Charlie Parker. Word to the wise, imitate masters, then develop your own voice and style and approach. Now, let's hear Lee Konitz with fellow practitioner and student of the Lenny Tristano School, Warren Marsh. Together, they play a song that's Konitz's best-known original composition, Subconscious Lee, which is based on the harmonic chord changes of the American songbook standard, What Is This Thing Called Love? <laughs> Thank you. 
I'll always remember reading an interview with Konitz in Downbeat Magazine in 1985, the year I graduated from college, where he described his approach to improvisation. He was using in that interview the standard, all the things you are, as the basis. He'd start with eight bars of the original melody and with each chorus develop variations on the theme maintaining allegiance to the original by referencing target notes of the melody while varying the rhythmic emphasis, uh, employing various variations until those variations became more and more of an original theme and what he called an act of pure inspiration. So I'll close our section on Lee Konis with two anecdotes from instances I saw in person with him. Both were at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Now, on one occasion, I was giving a pre-concert lecture in which I played a song from Benny Goodman's discography that had a beboppish edge. The hall was packed, so I couldn't see everyone individually. After I played that cut, I saw a hand go up. I called on the gentleman. It was Lee Gonitz. I was so excited that before he could even ask about the song, which he hadn't really heard before, I had to declare what an honor it was to have such a living legend in attendance, who, as Wynton Marsalis would say of Konitz, was a pure improviser. On the second occasion, Konitz was being interviewed. The interviewer declared how much he respected Lee's integrity. He said, you never sold out. Deadpan. Lee looked at him and then at the audience, shrugging his shoulders, saying, nobody ever asked me to. <laughs> I have a question for you, Greg. Um, Lee Konitz and Michael Brecker. Um, that's a real interesting dichotomy. And I imagine there's a lot of thought and, and I guess feeling which goes behind the choice of Lee Konitz and Michael Brecker. Lee Konitz has this cool, introverted sound and Michael Brecker has a hotter sound. Could you say a few words about how Lee Konitz and Michael Brecker fit together before you segue into the next section dealing with Michael Brecker? Thank you. I'd be glad to. I mean, they're different generations. Lee Konitz is uh, um, from the generation, as I mentioned earlier, of the, of the bebop era. But the style that uh, he developed was part of what they call the cool school, derived more from Lester Young, but that had kind of a Charlie Parker kind of technique, but in a cool way where they didn't have vibrato and that type of, they played in the upper register of the horn. Michael Brecker focused on tenor. Mm -hmm. Lee Konitz was alto primarily. Mm -hmm. That's one difference. But another difference is generational. So Michael Brecker, he was deeply influenced, as we'll hear, by John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. and was someone who followed in that tradition, mm -hmm. different generation. And he was hot, yang, very expressive, whereas mm -hmm. Lee Konitz, as you said, it was more introverted. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing about Michael Brecker. Um, so I'm all ears. Uh, please. <laughs> all right. I'll be glad to continue. So next is the late, great saxophonist Michael Brecker who from the 1970s to his passing in 2007 became one of the most influential tenor saxophonists in the world. Now, he caught my attention very early in my jazz love affair. Like Konitz, Brecker began on clarinet, 
moved on to alto sax and settled on tenor sax in high school. He was born on March 29, 1949 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to a Jewish fam family. Philadelphia is known for having so many great jazz artists come uh, from that city. His dad was a lawyer and an amateur jazz pianist. His mom was a portrait artist, so he grew up really around, surrounded by the arts. His older brother, Randy, is a noted jazz trumpeter. As a youth, Randy and Michael's parents would take them to see performances by Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, and Duke Ellington. But when Michael heard tenor saxophonist John Coltrane, his life changed forever. Now, there was an elder writer friend of mine who once told me a story about going to the jazz club that Michael and Randy owned and performed in back in the 1970s, 7th Avenue South. And after hearing a set, he went up to Michael Brecker and said, hey, man, you sound great. You remind me of John Coltrane. The way he said it, it was kind of, it had the tone of like, you're imitating train. Michael Brecker, not missing a beat, looked at him and said, well, that's no surprise. He was God on the tenor saxophone and walked off, leaving my elder writer friend speechless. <laughs> now, when I immersed myself in jazz, which was in high school through college, you could hear Brecker everywhere because he performed as a great studio musician with artists in every genre, from pop to rock to soul and even gospel. And it was clear to me that he was an incredible technician. But I wondered if he could play what's called mainstream straight ahead jazz. Now we're going to find out the answer to that question in a moment. But for now, let's hear him from 1975 playing a gorgeous ballad. I'll Never Stop Loving You, from pianist Hal Galper's 1975 album, Reach Out. was that? Mm. Now, when I attended Hamilton College from 1981 to 1985, a music group that featured Brecker prominently, Steps Ahead, was a mainstay for me and my musician friends. We once took a trip to Syracuse University to hear Brecker and his musical partners perform songs such as Pools by Don Grolnick and Islands by vibraphonist Mike Maneri with his Caribbean flavor which we hear playing right now. From that point, Michael Brecker went on to record under his own name while still playing in many configurations, including a fantastic date with Herbie Hancock and Roy Hargrove, a ballad album, The Nearness of You, and his last recording in 2007, Pilgrimage. That recording won several Grammys and was a fitting final recording. In late 2004, Michael Brecker was diagnosed with a rare blood disorder, MDS, 
a disease found almost exclusively among the Ashkenazi Jewish community and their descendants. Over two and a half years, there was a search for a compatible donor, but no perfect match could be found. Many celebrations and memorials in Brecker's honor began after his passing and continue to today. I produced a tribute to him on WBAI radio with his saxophone partner, David Sanborn, as guest. Brett Premack, a Jewish American videographer who for decades has been almost single-handedly keeping the flame of jazz alive on video, created a podcast series devoted to Brecker. One of the key guests on that podcast was Bill Milkowski, author of the book, Ode to a Tenor Titan, The Life and Times and Music of Michael Brecker. At the memorial service for Michael Brecker on February 20th, 2007, at Town Hall in New York City, an illustrious gathering of musicians and fans honored him. Herbie Hancock spoke of Brecker's compassion. His brother Randy told all present that although the search for a suitable donor for his brother didn't work out, that because of that drive for a donor, Israel began taking blood samples from all members of their armed forces. And fellow sax great Dave Liebman discussed their common love of John Coltrane and their shared Jewish heritage. That Coltrane believed that music was a force of good in the world and the universe is clear through his composition, A Love Supreme. Likewise, Tikkun Olam is a traditional Jewish tenet that we can make the world better by aligning ourselves with the Almighty. Amen. There's no question that Michael Brecker's presence for 57 years on planet Earth as a musician was a force that won't be forgotten. Now let's see Brecker swang along with bassist Christian McBride, drummer Alvin Queen, and pianist Benny Green on a jazz standard, softly as in a morning sunrise.
Well, we've met some remarkable musicians during this trip. Greg, thank you very much for introducing us to Lee Konitz and, and Michael Brecker. Um, we've heard Jewish American contributions to the jazz tradition, each with a distinct individual voice. But how do you become an individual? And how do you cultivate your own style, your own voice, or your own sound? Well, our last jazz story will focus on a remarkable man who cultivated individuality uh, among his students and was a remarkable individual himself, uh, Arnie Lawrence. Uh, that's Arnie, what you're hearing right now, uh, playing Loverman from his 1982 recording, Renewal. Uh, Arnie Lawrence was born in Brooklyn in 1938. That's the same year that Benny Goodman expanded the boundaries of American culture at Carnegie Hall. Uh, at age 12, he was playing professionally. At age 17, Arnie was playing at Birdland. And in 1967, he joined the legendary Clark Terry's big band. Terry was also a profoundly gifted teacher. And in the 1970s, Arnie joined Terry as a teacher at Penn Studio in Harlem. Arnie later remembered how Clark Terry taught me how to teach. In the 1980s, Arnie, in turn, played an instrumental role in founding the jazz program at New York's New School. And in the 90s, he founded the International Center for Creative Music in Jerusalem. Now, Arnie's students from over the years include artists, famous artists, such as Roy Hargrove, Red Maldow, Robert Glasper, still Spike Wilner of Smalls Jazz Club, Omar Avital, Anat Avishai, Nuval Cohen, Itamar Borokhov, and many others. What did Arnie teach? Here's what Arnie said about learning from the masters. Those guys are giants because they don't set any limits on themselves, and they use as a guide greatness, meaning they use greatness as their guide. So if you want to play great, practice great, you know what it sounds like. Arnie accordingly created frameworks that brought together master musicians and students. When you get the acceptance of great people and they put your, their hand on your shoulder, that's what I did. I tried to put jazz originals, musical originals with different opinions in front of talented young people. Arnie's ultimate goal, however, was to help his students find their own voice. And this is what he had to say about uh, that process. The music will take you there if you let your mind go to that special place where you become part of the music. Once your mind and your spirit and your soul become part of the music, you're playing with so much joy. When you hit that point, your ego disappears. And you listen inside the song. You say, the sound that is coming out of my trombone, or my trumpet, or my saxophone, or my piano, or my guitar, is my voice. But let's hear from two of Arnie's students, bassist Omar Avital and trumpet player, it, trumpet player Itamar Borohov. Omar and Itamar are celebrated composers, band leaders, virtuosos, and musical storytellers with distinctive voices. Omar remembers how Arnie demanded more than mimicry 
and technical mastery on the bandstand. Arnie was the type of teacher that he, he, he would teach without formal theory. You know, he right. just wanted you to feel the music. And he would just, we would go up and play, and then he would look and say, but who are you? <laughs> you know, like I hear Art Taylor, I hear Max Rose, but where is Itamar remembers how Arnie was always teaching inside and outside the classroom. Now this requires a high level of receptivity on the student's part. So I asked Itamar if apprenticeship might be the right term. I think apprenticeship is a very strong and correct word. That 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 was the definitely the the experience of somebody um sort of taking you under their wing and therefore every moment with him was a lesson. So there was my experience with Arnie that there was really no downtime. He wasn't interested in uh, small talk or talking about something that doesn't have like a meaning and something to learn from. He was just like um, an intense character. So for me, it was just, let me absorb um, as much of this as I can. And Arnie was sharing all the time. Of course, the ultimate embodiment of Arnie's teaching is found in his students' music. Unsurprisingly, their range is as varied as their personalities. We'll listen to two cuts. First, let me add that Omar and Itamar have applied a jazz sensibility to playing North African, Middle Eastern, and Central Asian music, music that has been preserved and transmitted by Sephardi and Mizrahi Jewish communities. With Omar direct, directing, he and Itamar were founding members of the world music sensation Yemen Blues and also collaborated on the New Jerusalem Orchestra's Moroccan Andalusian masterpiece, Eternal Love. Now that's the opening to Itamar's original Bayat Blues playing in the background. Itamar's quartet played Bayat Blues live at the Omni American Future Project's sec second annual event at Mitten's Jazz Club in 2022. That was a wonderful, blessed special evening, Greg. It sure was, and Itamar played his butt off, man. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to check out Itamar's blistering solo yeah you remember this on the piece from that same Oof. evening
finally, we'll conclude with the spirited, joyful sound of Anat Cohen. Anat remembers Arnie as one of the most beautiful souls, and she considers him to be one of her most important teachers. Anat has taken a deep dive into Brazilian choral music, but we'll bring our journey home with her buoyant clarinet solo on the American jazz standard Tiger Rag, played with the WDR Big Band. So thank you very much uh, for having joined us on this journey through Jewish-American contributions to the jazz tradition. Now, this is a vast territory, and we only marked out one path. It's the proverbial tip of the iceberg. There are many additional paths that we could have explored and different stories uh, that we could have told. For instance, the great stride pianist and black Jew Willie the Lion Smith we could have ch- checked out the cool bounce of saxophonist, saxophonist Stan, the sound gets. We could have uh, visited the imaginal Jewish universes of composer, conductor, saxophonist, arranger, and producer John Zorn, and many other people uh, as well. That's right, Arya, and we'd be remiss if we also didn't mention the pianist and founder of the jazz festival tradition, George Ween, producer and promoter Norman Grantz, famous for organizing jazz at the Philharmonic, and historian, jazz advocate, and radio host Phil Schapp. One of my proudest moments, man, was when I served as the jazz columnist for the New York Daily News, Mm -hmm. and Phil complimented me Mm. on a feature that I wrote on the Bill Charlap trio that featured... Charlap on piano, Peter Washington on bass, and Kenny Washington on drums. Mm-hmm. Phil Schapp, he he was so dedicated to the jazz idiom, as were all the people that we have been talking about. So I want to thank you, Arye, mm-hmm. for co-hosting this journey into the Jewish-American contributions to jazz during Jewish-American Heritage Month in 2023. And thank each of you for joining us on the journey. In season two, we'll continue our omni-American themes of personal, civic, and cultural excellence through conversations featuring us in dialogue with guests who are thought leaders, artists, writers, and scholars. We thank those of you who have watched us and followed us in 2023 and look out for our return in early 2024. Thank you for listening to Straight Ahead, the omni-American podcast. Subscribe. And leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast and fight for a future 
where the many can join as one against bigotry.